Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour. I am Jeff Crawford, and joined, as always, by my brother, Michael Crawford. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm fine and dandy and ready for a trip down Main Street, USA. That's right. We're going We're going into the park to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Main Street. It's ubiquitous with Disney parks, Michael. It is the front door to the Disney park experience. If you're going into one of those castle parks, you're going to take a stroll down the middle of Main Street. Now, what are we going to be talking about today? Oh my gosh. Well, there's so much to talk about. So much to talk about. We're, of course, going to remember the magic of Main Street's past. But we're also going to look at some of the influences Main Street has sprung from. Of course, famously, the spirit of Main Street, I guess you could say, comes from Walt City of Marceline. Walt's I was not... He would say his hometown, probably, even though he wasn't born there and only lived there a short while. Very influential on his life. So we're going to talk about what's there to see in Marceline when you visit, and you should. Also going to talk about the trip that Walt took to Chicago, 1948, that helped inspire some Disneyland ideas. And we're going to look at some of the Main Street experience uh, through music, because we like to do that. Also, I have some comments on Main Street from somebody who knows Main Street, left, right, up, down, and sideways, Mr. Eddie Sato. Wow. Well, that is a lot to get to. I guess, you know, if we're going to be talking about Marceline, we better check in with Walt. When you come in the main gate, past the railroad station, down the steps and across the band concert park, Straight ahead lies the heartline of America, an old-fashioned Main Street. Hometown USA, just after the turn of the century. America was growing fast. Towns and villages were turning into cities. Soon the gas light will be replaced by electricity. But that was still in the future. At this time, Little Main Street was still the most important spot in the nation. Combining the color of frontier days with the oncoming excitement of the new 20th century. While Disneyland's Main Street draws from a number of sources and inspirations, it can't be denied that a great deal of its spirit stems from Walt's boyhood experiences in the small town of Marceline, Missouri. Walt's dad Elias moved the family to Marceline from Chicago in 1906, when Walt was only four years old. For the next five and a half years, Walt would lead what he later recalled as an idyllic life on the farm, perhaps the only time in his young life he was allowed to cut loose and be a kid. Walt once said that, More things of importance happened to me and Marceline than have happened since or are likely to in the future. When I moved to Los Angeles in 2011, I packed everything I could fit into my car and headed west on what I saw as a bit of an odyssey. Uh, One of the themes I had going through my head was walking in Walt's footsteps, kind of mimicking his legendary 1923 move to Hollywood with pretty much only his train ticket and flimsy suitcase to his name. As part of this voyage, I wanted to revisit some of the historic sites from Walt's life, so I took a longer northern route, which took me through Kansas City and, of course, included a side trip to Marceline. Marceline is located in Lynn County, which is situated in north-central Missouri. 
since about an hour from the closest interstate to which it connects by highway. It took me about an hour and a half to reach it driving north from Interstate 70 along Missouri Route 5, a long and barely inhabited stretch dominated by rolling farmland punctuated by stands of old trees. You know, in a lot of ways, it looked uncannily similar to the rural highways outside the small town where we grew up. Marceline's population, as of the last census, is a little over 2,200, which is actually smaller than it was when Walt lived there. And it definitely has the feel of a sleepy small town. But to those of us who are interested in Walt's life, it's worth a visit. Not only to better understand him, but to visit a few points of interest for the Disney historian. And when paired with a visit to Kansas City, the place Walt and family moved after their time in Marceline, you can really put together a fascinating triptych of his early life. Aside from Route 5, the main north-south drag through town is Kansas Avenue, which is where the so-called Main Street is located. About a block away is the railroad line which passes through town, the same railroad via which Walt and his family arrived from Chicago. Perhaps it's fitting, considering Walt's lifelong obsession with trains, that Marceline owes its existence to the railroad. It was founded in 1888 by the Santa Fe Railway, which needed a division point for its route from Chicago to Kansas City. The town was named for one of the railroad director's wives. Walt's uncle Mike worked as an engineer for the Santa Fe, and Walt spent many hours hanging around the railroad. The town's biggest attraction is the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, which is located in the old Santa Fe Depot along the rail line. I, I will tell you, it is kind of eerie to stand there on the tracks and think about young Walt excitingly looking down the same right of way uh, during his young train spotting days. Uh, the Hometown Museum is a charming institution that was founded in 2001 on the 100th anniversary of Walt's birth. Its collection comes in large part from the archives of Ruth Disney Beecher, Walt's sister. Her collection of correspondence and artifacts really shed light on Walt's relationships with his siblings and on the Disney family's time in the area. The staff are really devoted to their mission, and I highly recommend people make a visit. You can also look them up online at waltdisneymuseum.org, and there's an online shop where you can help support their mission. I hope everyone will check it out and throw a few dollars their way. I would kind of love it if everyone listening orders a pin or a keychain from them when this episode drops and they wonder what's going on with all this deluge of orders. So look them up. Uh, next to the depot is a former lunchroom known to locals as The Beanery. It now houses a small museum about Marceline's railroad history and is included in the price of admission to the Disney Museum. Across the road is Marceline's Town Park, E.P. Ripley Park. This is a name which should be no stranger to Disneyland fans. E. Ripley was not only the former head of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, but he was also the namesake of one of Disneyland's original steam engines. The park, where Walt once played as a child, is now the home of an antique locomotive. In 1966, the Midget Autopia attraction closed at Disneyland, and Walt took an unprecedented step of donating the ride to the city of Marceline, the first and last time a Disney attraction made its way outside the berm. No less than Admiral Joe Fowler was assigned to install the attraction and train its operators. The Autopia was installed at Marceline's Walt Disney Municipal Park, near where Walt had dedicated the Walt Disney Swimming Pool a decade earlier. 
The Marceline Autopia closed in 1977, but its concrete thoroughfare still remains, allowing visitors to retrace its path. One of the antique ride vehicles can also be found in the hometown museum. What's more, for the last few years, efforts have been underway to raise funds to recreate the Autopia path in the heart of downtown Marceline, right between the hometown museum, the Beanery, and Ripley Park. This is being done with an eye to someday reviving the Autopia itself. Other sites of interest nearby include a Carnegie Library, one of those libraries that Mark Twain harasses Carnegie about building in the American Adventure. Then there's the Walt Disney Post Office, named in his honor in 2003, and the only federal building named after Walt. It was the location where, in 1968, the Postal Service issued the famous Walt Disney commemorative stamp. If you stop by, you can get your letter or postcard hand-canceled with a unique Disney cancellation. Walt saw his first movie in Marceline, so it's fitting that he and Roy returned in 1956 for the Midwestern premiere of The Great Locomotive Chase at the Uptown Theater. Speaking to a crowded theater of kids before the show, Walt told them, My best memories are the years I spent in Marceline. You children are lucky to live here. The Disney studio came back to Marceline in 1998 for the premiere of a direct-video Mickey Shorts collection, The Spirit of Mickey. Unfortunately, the Uptown Theater is currently closed, but fundraising efforts are underway there as well to restore and revive the facility. In 1960, Walt again visited Marceline for the dedication of the Walt Disney Elementary School. Disney studio artist and later Disney legend Bob Moore created murals for the school filled with Disney characters. Moore would later design the Disney postage stamp we mentioned before. Walt also supplied the school with Disney educational books, gave each classroom a set of encyclopedias, and even provided themed playground equipment. He also gifted the school its flagpole, which still stands outside. It's one of the commemorative flagpoles the studio designed, which stood at the 1960 Olympic Winter Games, for which Walt was the director of pageantry. Of course, the reason for all these goings-on was the fact that Walt actually lived in Marceline, and the family farm and home are still there. Located on West Broadway, the Disney farm is a private residence, but occasionally opens up for special events. There's a recreation of the Disney family barn, which was constructed for Walt's centennial. The original structure had inspired the design of Walt's barn in Hollywood that housed the machine shop for his Carrollwood Pacific Backyard Railroad. That barn now resides in Griffith Park, while the Marceline version is open to guests from around the world, who leave messages and memories written on its beams and rafters. Nearby is the so-called Son of Dreaming Tree, planted by one of Walt's grandsons in 2003. At the time, representatives from Walt Disney World brought soil from the Magic Kingdom's hub and water from the rivers of America for the sapling. It was sprouted from a seed of the original Dreaming Tree, an old cottonwood which sat on the farm until 2015 and somewhat apocryphally became known as the Dreaming Tree. Local legend says that Walt and his sister would sit under the tree and watch the world go by as Walt would draw and dream. Whether that's true or not is anyone's guess, but it's a pleasant location and it's pretty wild to think that you're walking around where a young Walt once wrestled pigs. It's also worth noting that the farm and Walt's time there heavily inspired the look and content of his 1948 film, So Dear to My Heart. Walt's always cited the film as one of his favorites, saying that the life it depicted was the one that he and Roy had lived in Marceline. 
Before his 1966 death, amid all his many other projects then underway, Walt secretly began pursuing a project in Marceline. Planning studies were undertaken with Buzz Price's Economic Research Associates, and Disney's private rent law company even purchased the Disney farm and several hundred adjoining acres. Deals were even in the works with Missouri to widen the highway leading into town. The idea was to build a sort of living history farm attraction, which would be operated as a nonprofit. Walt would not only be able to recreate the favorite parts of his childhood, but also educate an increasingly urban nation about its agricultural past. Sadly, this is just one of the many projects to be sidelined when Walt died, and when Roy died in 1971, the project was gone for good. It's a shame because it would have been good for the area and would be a fascinating attraction in its own right. So, that's a look at Marceline, a town which cast a long shadow in pop culture, despite the fact that it only housed a young Disney for five short years. Being a fan of road trips, I encourage everyone to hop in the car once it's safe and take this journey into the past, visiting Marceline's attractions as well as some of the historic sites in Kansas City. Every Disney fan should do it at least once, and I'll even admit the barbecue isn't bad either. Walt's memory of his childhood in Marceline would be the beginning of what would end up as Main Street, but it would take a crew of art directors and Walt's travel to some like-minded places that would really set the wheels of Disneyland in motion. One of the most notable trips Walt would take before Disneyland was a 1948 trip to Chicago and Dearborn, Michigan to visit the Chicago Railroad Fair and Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. This was at the behest of Walt's personal nurse, Hazel George, if you remember, we mentioned Hazel as Walt's closest confidant at the studio, who would even moonlight as a songwriter for the Mickey Mouse Club and subsequent films under the name Gil George. Hazel said that Walt was in danger of another breakdown if he didn't take a vacation for fun, so Walt recruited animator Ward Kimball as a travel partner. According to Kimball, Walt's proposition to be his travel partner came in the form of a phone call where he said, quote, GD, you have more fun than anybody I know. How would you like to go back to the Chicago Railroad Fair with me? <laughs> oh, Ward Kimball probably did have more fun than anyone Walt knew, I would guess. Yeah, probably so. Although probably not, and I don't know. I, Walt probably wouldn't be in for the same kinds of fun. But uh, he was in—he was in for fun. That's good to know. Also, Hazel George, the constant presence. <laughs> 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 
I know. I mean, she was the true confidant. Man, Ward Kimball was just like the true bohemian. of he, he was allowed to run without a leash, unlike anybody else at the Disney studio. Yeah, really. And that's one of the things where I'd love to hear, you know, get Walt today sort of off the record and be like, what do you think about Ward Kimball? Just right. to hear. Because you can imagine him just cracking up behind the scenes at all this stuff he would come up with. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he had a full-scale steam engine in his backyard railway is... Yeah. That is something. But uh, Walt and Ward would travel across the country on the famous Super Chief train and spend a few days immersing themselves in railroad culture and all kinds of bits and bobs that would eventually point back to Disneyland. Walt did indeed have fun and relaxed and came back ready to make what was the first draft of Disneyland... The Mickey Mouse Park on Riverside Drive, adjacent to the studio. So let's go back in time and see what inspired Walt on his trip to Chicago and Dearborn in 1948. The 1948 Chicago Railroad Fair celebrated 100 years of railroading west of Chicago and was set on 50 acres in Burnham Park on the shores of Lake Michigan. It was sponsored by 39 railroad companies and was so popular it ended up coming back for an encore season in 1949. The fair was situated on a relatively thin, long strip of land along the lake with a narrow gauge train called the Deadwood Express running the length of the fair and providing a means of transport between the different areas. And there were many. Oh man, I, I wish... This is something that would have been so amazing. Oh gosh, I know. I you mean, got Chicago, which is great enough in and of right. itself, but then all this railroad stuff, it's really, uh, really good times. And it was an interesting era where, you know, they were far enough away from, you know, moments in railroad history that they could really appreciate it. And they were starting to preserve the history, but a lot of that history had been lost because of the, you know, progress at this point in time. So they were just starting to look at historic preservation. So it's kind of a unique time in that. Yeah. Entering the fair, you would see grandstands off to the left where the Cypress Gardens Thrill Show would entertain people with water skiers, aqua planes, aqua clowns, mm-hmm. and a parade of beach fashions that, quote, features the newest and smartest in feminine bathing garb this was the 1949 edition along with the outdoor ice show directly adjacent Uh, the guidebook describes watching the dazzling all-girl skating ensembles as a refreshing novelty of stirring ice skating showmanship (laughs) sounds good how did they do it you say ice skating in the summer who knew I know all that refrigeration from those meatpacking companies paying off that's true Uh, The first themed area you would encounter was, fittingly, Central Florida in all its glory, consisting of a 25-foot-tall replica of the Bach Tower from Lake Wells, Florida, right down the road from the future site of Walt Disney World. You don't see Central Florida getting much uh, praise in these days. No, not back in the day, certainly. And just the idea of Bach Tower replica in Chicago is striking. That is pretty amazing. Uh, The tower would sing as it does in Lake Wales through the day, and you had a reflecting pool, a little plantation-style building that had a lounge surrounded by plants and trees from Florida, which I have no idea how they pulled that off in Chicago. 
uh, guests could, quote, sip cooling orange juice served by beautiful southern hostesses and enjoy pleasures popular with vacationists to Dixieland. Inside the Colonial Mansion, there was also a transportation mural and dioramas that had motion and lighting effects and three-dimensional Stephen Foster Memorial, which dramatizes the immortal way down upon the Suwannee River. Wow. That's, what a show. I know. You had me at the dioramas and murals, but, I mean, Stephen Foster You had Foster me with the beautiful southern hostesses and their cooling orange juice. Of course. Someone needs to make, like, a Disney legend that this inspired, like, the orange bird that's and true. the sunshine that's terrace. True. That's true. Uh, so in 1949, beside Florida, they added a San Francisco exhibit with free rides on a cable car from 1880. Wow. It would go up and down a slope toward Lake Michigan and turn around on a turntable and return. And also there, you could catch the movie California's Golden Beginning at the Golden Gate Theater. So I wonder if Khalifa, this inspired Khalifa. Everything exactly. came from there. Everything came from here. Well, we're not done. Uh, next to San Francisco, there was a reproduction of New Orleans French Quarter, which was a streetscape you could wander through and relax in. Sound familiar? There were uh, strolling musicians, fountains, and according to the guidebook, youthful hostesses in dainty Dixie costumes. Mm, I am sens I'm sensing a theme here. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, it also says, through covered archways and cool breezeways, the paths lead to a comfortable pavilion with plenty of comfortable seating for the leg-weary, where reservations may be made for meals served on the Café St. Louise, the world's first all-electric dining car. Wow. Count me into all this is what I I'm know. saying. I know. This is... This is like the best part. Like for me, the best parts of a theme park, like go to Magic Kingdom, best parts, railroad, wetway, you know, streetcar. Right. right? <laughs> this is like all the other stuff is gone and it's a theme park of all the best parts. It's all, yeah, it's all uh, condensed. Uh, up next, we're off to the Rocky Mountains where we have a rodeo and dude ranch with all the trimmings, a replica of the old faithful geyser. You got live bears, waterfalls, teepees, totem poles, and stagecoaches. Next to that exhibit is Old Mexico and all its romance. And here we have a dance floor with a bandstand for cutting a rug and listening to music. And you could also dine aboard the luxurious club car La Fiesta. More strolling musicians, dioramas, and movies here as well. Then comes the Indian village, which had 125 American Indians hailing from five different tribes around the country, reproducing dwellings and arts and crafts, along with dancing and song. Another future Disneyland feature here. At the end of the line for the Deadwood Railroad was the town of Gold Gulch, fully realized in the 1949 fair. Here you had an authentic main street with wooden sidewalks and the usual crusty characters, According to the guidebook, quote, there's a new appreciation of the courage and grim perseverance it took to build America to be had from its many crude exhibits. For true perspective, you will like its grub steak eating place, <laughs> Dutch Annie's Waffle Shop, Pirette's 1870 Barbershop, Silver Dollar Saloon, Gazette newspaper, and it goes on to report that the Gold Gulch Opera House is offering stirring melodramas daily. 
Man, this is very Nazi feeling thing. Not very Nazi-ish much ish feeling thing, I guess you'd say. I guess Grim Perseverance was the predecessor of hard facts. <laughs> I thought that. That it took to build America. I just need to eat at the grub steak. And uh, I love that they claim it as crude exhibits. Uh, that that really cracked me up. I, never, I imagine the grub steak eating place. What What is it? Liberty Valance or. Whatever me- movie it is with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, where Jimmy Stewart's in the place cooking those giant steaks. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's it. The grub steak. Well, that's just part of the offerings of this fair. There were playgrounds, museum exhibits, trade exhibits, and miniature railroads all over. The Union Pacific had a Western Wonderlands exhibit in a Spanish mission-style building that included in its collection the actual golden spike from the Transcontinental Railroad. Various railroad companies had cars on display from the Bud Company's Vista Dome to GM's Train of the Future. Which, I mean, come on. Yeah. In 1949, there was Vidarama, which was a precursor to Cinerama. Vidarama was invented by Fred Waller, who would also be the inventor of the water ski. It debuted at the 1939 New York World's Fair. And the first iteration had 11 projectors projecting movies on a dome screen. This Vitarama machine, the only one in existence at the time, used five screens in a presentation of railroads and their role in growing America. So they were working their way down to Cinerama's three cameras. But man. It's like how the West was won big time. Right. Uh, Next to Vitarama was a giant exhibit of model trains. And the terrifying Genial Joe, a giant robot railroad fireman, and a favorite of the kitties. I'm sure. Terrifying. Uh, There was also a 35-foot-tall Paul Bunyan robot at this fair who would talk, move, shake, and, quote, get a kick recounting his famous feats. I hope there's footage of this somewhere, (laughs) because I can only imagine... The technology. The technology. I mean, it's like us as kids, like sitting in a cardboard box and pretending to be a <laughs> robot right, and talking right. in a robot voice. I just the thought of a 35 foot tall Paul Bunyan of that technology is yeah. just, oh. Hey, just aluminum can technology. Hear the metal scraping against metal as he moves his head. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, there is a lot of footage of, which is the highlight of the fair, without a doubt. That was the Wheels a Rollin' pageant, presented on a giant stage on Lake Michigan. Now, this was produced by Lennox Lore, who was involved in the Chicago World's Fair of 1933, and it was on a gigantic scale. It was essentially an outdoor pageant with trains, horses, cars, bicycles, trolleys, you name it. There were several side wings that everything would emerge from, and it is just mind-boggling. It also seems incredibly unsafe, as they have very old locomotives going right by actors and spectators spewing sparks in the air. But, I mean, it's crazy. They were going so fast through these stage uh, with all these actors. These just trains go flying through. But oh, wow. That's great. It was divided into 14 scenes going from Indian Trails and Waterways 1673 up to Modern Transport 1949. Uh, highlights included locomotives from the 1830s crisscrossing the stage, Conestoga wagons, Lincoln's funeral coach, a recreation of the Golden Spike complete with two engines meeting nose to nose, 
Many horseless carriages and even a hand pump fire engine displaying pumping water out of a hose into the lake. That would have been something to witness in person. Yeah, it's just like everything they could think of. I know, it's just a huge, just all the trimmings. Uh, Walton Ward would have special treatment at the fair, treated as kings during their time there, being allowed to drive some of these historic engines. And this, no doubt, would help in forgetting the cares of running a studio. Michael, this place, why can't we have a time machine to go? I know, this is my new obsession. Usually I'm <laughs> uh, worked up about the old World's Fairs and everything. I had no idea this was such an event. I mean, this is almost a World's Fair level Oh yeah, shenanigans going on yeah. here. And uh, I had no idea. I'm going to have to really dig into this thing and find out what was going on. But you can see how this easily could have inspired a lot of ideas for Disneyland. Absolutely. So on the way back home, Walton Ward would spend two days at Greenfield Village and the Ediston Institute in Dearborn, Michigan. And thankfully, we can still visit this complex, and I really have to at some point. It is such a sprawling complex filled with all kinds of history. This was born out of a few different strands of Henry Ford's thinking. His devotion to Thomas Edison, his preservation of historic buildings and artifacts, and his desire to educate in a new way. So Greenfield Village was a collection of historic buildings that Ford collected and moved to his campus. This started with a 1919 road project that threatened to destroy Ford's farmhouse birthplace. Ford moved the house and began to restore it the way it was in 1876, the year his mother died. Ford obsessively searched for furnishings, licking 18 months for a stove, and having replicas of the dishes made from shards of pottery he excavated from the original site. Wow. I have proof of that level of dedication yes he That's was great. dedicated uh he was assisted by edward cutler uh an engineer who would help in setting out the buildings on the greenfield site and constructing new buildings to go along with them and so my theme of all this greenfield village i don't understand how you move a building like this i just don't i mean this is an amazing how they did this no some ancient farmhouse especially right. in this day and age you know right the Institute was a giant 12-acre building with a facade designed to mimic Independence Hall and other colonial Philadelphia buildings. Always. A wild, yeah, wild building. A huge, it looks like a huge factory with Independence Hall on the front. Uh, the complex opened in 1929 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Edison's light bulb, but it would continue to grow through Walt's visits to the complex. Initially, it was not open to the public and served as a school for children, focusing on hands-on learning. At its peak, 300 students would be enrolled in the Institute, and in 1940, during his first visit to the campus with daughter Diane, Walt would speak to the students of the school and showing off some of his drawing skills, which was pretty rare. Yeah, that is very unusual. The only, I mean, I, he did it for some, I guess he would only do it for kids. He did it for kids... Uh, when they were on the El Grupo trip in South America for like right. a school assembly. But man, he did not do that often, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a picture of him, and he has drawn his face and profile. He's teaching a girl how to draw Mickey Mouse. So. Oh, that's great. He yeah. got like nervous in later years right. about doing stuff like that. He's like, I don't know how to draw anymore. Ah. Right. They don't pay me to draw. In 1933, Greenfield Village and the Edison Institute would open to the public. Well, let's take a look at Greenfield Village and see what Walton Ward would have seen when they came to Dearborn. 
Entering the complex, you would be greeted by a floral clock that came from a Detroit park from the late 19th century and was originally water-powered, which I found interesting. It would live in the Greenfield Village from the 30s through the 70s until it was returned to the city. Mm. Uh, one of the major draws was the recreation of Edison's Menlo Park labs and surrounding buildings. A few original buildings would be moved, but most would be reconstructed anew. Other inventors had their history represented as well, with Harvey Firestone's farmhouse, barn, and outbuildings being preserved. The Wright Brothers' bicycle shop was another popular draw, with their house being moved next door. A house originally thought to be Stephen Foster's birthplace was moved to the property, as were houses that belonged to Noah Webster and Henry J. Hines. Uh, Ford built a cabin dedicated to the accounts and memory of his friend George Washington Carver to serve as a memorial. Along with machine shops and mills, a big focus of the buildings here was on farming and agricultural innovation. There are also unique buildings like the country's oldest windmill dating from the 1650s, the Owl Night Lunch Wagon, which is believed to be the only horse-drawn lunch wagon still in existence, dating to 1890, a lunch cart that Ford would use when he worked for Edison's Light Company. Uh, the Owl Night Lunch Wagon. Owl Night Lunch Wagon. It's they served up. I bet it, it was good, or really yeah. bad. Ford also once saw a stone cottage and surrounding buildings dating back to the 17th century in Cotswold, England, and decided to bring them back to Greenfield Village. Sure. Why not? My favorite is that Ford heard Thomas Edison reminisce about a riverboat he used to ride on named the Swanee while staying in his winter lab in Fort Myers, Florida. When Ford found out it sank, he had the engine rescued and riverboat reconstructed and dredged a circular river on property for the riverboat to travel. Weird. Yes. So there was a 70-foot-long steam-powered riverboat up until the 70s on a circular river right there in Greenfield Village, Michael. That's just nuts. I know. And the things that like all these guys from this era were obsessed with. Yes. Like, yeah, like everybody obsessed with the mighty Mississippi and steamboats. <laughs> That's right. And, That's right. Um, like everybody with like their fanboy, like Henry Ford fanboying Thomas Edison. Major fanboy of Thomas Edison, yes. I mean, he used to work for Thomas Edison, but man, he uh, he was dedicated to Thomas. So Henry Ford would build several new buildings for Greenfield Village, some based on buildings that existed in the real world and others just inspired by period buildings. The main focus of what is now known as the Main Street section of Greenfield Village is centered around a village green. On one end is a town hall building, and the other has a chapel, both inspired by New England colonial era to early 1800s architecture. Other buildings around the green are a general store, a doctor's office, a courthouse where young Abraham Lincoln tried cases, and the schoolhouse where it is said that young Henry Ford played pranks. There is no doubt this area of the Greenfield would influence Walt as he would send a memo to studio art director Dick Kelsey in 1948 outlining the plan of what would be known as Mickey Mouse Park next to the Disney studio in Burbank. In the memo, he says, quote, The main village, which includes the railroad station, is built around a village green or informal park. In the park will be benches, a bandstand, a drinking fountain, Ooh. trees, and shrubs. Refreshing. Yes, it will be a place for people to sit and rest. Mothers and grandmothers can watch over small children at play. I want it to be very relaxing, cool, and inviting. 
In addition to the newly constructed buildings Ford and Cutler designed to stand with the actual older buildings, other buildings were repurposed or edited to fit in with the scale or narrative of the Greenville Village. Ford's first factory was reproduced at a quarter size of the real thing. When Ford had found an ornate clock on a building, he brought it back to Greenfield and had Cutler cut three stories out of the middle of the building to fit in better with the surroundings. Some details in the buildings are completely and historically accurate, and others in direct contradiction to each other. I find this interesting because it really stands out as a birth for a lot of outdoor history exhibits such as Colonial Williamsburg, but you could even argue some of Disney's later attempts at historic accuracy in their lands, all while serving a larger fantasy narrative started here as well yeah absolutely you can really see the roots of it i mean this is a a theme park in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and uh trying to get across a message and trying to evoke a feeling and sometimes that details are important and sometimes they aren't so important yeah it's just an amalgamation of things that evoke something else so yeah i am itching to get up to greenfield village so yeah yeah these days, they have a train that navigates the perimeter of the park. You can ride a Model T around, uh, which, of course, would be great. But, Michael, one of the most exciting stops would be the Eagle Tavern, which is a real tavern from the 1830s. And since the 1980s, they have offered a dining that is period appropriate to the 1850s, and they take it to the limit. No refrigeration, no lights, no heating in the building. Huh. And the food is supposed to be incredible. Everything clearly would be fresh. The bread and butter is made on site cocktails and meat and potatoes menu i'm already sold yeah that sounds fantastic according to a review i read the salt and pepper is ground by mortar and pestle and instead of straws they offer macaroni to sip through so let's take a field trip sometime (laughs) why has it in all this like uh modern kerfuffle about you know drinking straws why has nobody done that? It seems like the elegant solution to the problem who needs metal straws and paper straws macaroni Yes. Is the way to go. Yeah, I'm all on board for this. You know, we talked about Marceline. Uh, uh, You know, I'm down south, so a north-south route. Take me right up through Marceline, right up to Greenfield Village. Uh, Sounds See the sights. Meet me me somewhere in the middle. Main Street. Main Street. Meet me tonight on Main Street. Cause we've got a date tonight at eight So meet me down on Main Street Please don't be late, don't make me wait Just meet me down on Main Street We'll take a ride on an old horse car I'll buy you a chocolate bar You'll be the sweetest girl by far down on old Main Street. Oh, the fireman's band is gonna play, so meet me down on Main Street. They'll play Tarara Boom DA, parading down on Main Street. We'll pause a while at the popcorn stand. Little hometown is a fairy land down on 
Main Street USA is full of music from the moment you enter the park. There are more live music ensembles here than in any other land, and the music of the era is so wrapped into the predominant culture of the time, it's easy to see why. One of Disney's first forays into park music was the Mellow Men's 1957 LP, Meet Me Down on Main Street, which featured the a cappella quartet and a Main Street trolley on the cover. The title track would be a bit of an anthem for the parks in the early days of Disneyland, appearing on Disneyland specials almost every time you would see Main Street. The melody of this song would be written by Disney legend Oliver Wallace, originally as Crazy Over Daisy, which appeared in the Donald Duck short of the same name in 1950. Later songwriter and future writer of the Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World, Tom Adair, would put the lyric to it, and it would become one of the first pieces of theme park music. That is a great song, and I would never have guessed the connection to Mouseketeers at Walt Disney. You can always connect back to it, surely. Uh, these days, you don't hear Meet Me Down Main Street that much, which is a shame, but a song you do hear is one called I'm Walking Right Down the Middle of Main Street, USA. Now, this is not canon to our childhood, Michael. No. But uh, it's something that is exists now. This is a yes. song <laughs> written by Stu Nunnery, who worked for a jingle house in 1978, mostly making music for corporate ads. Uh, Nunnery would write the song for the 25th anniversary of Disneyland, but the song itself wouldn't really surface until 1985 for Disneyland's 30th anniversary special with none other than Marie Osmond performing it. Let's have a little bit of a listen to that. It is right sprightly. It is an unexpectedly sassy take on it. That's very, very sassy take indeed. For a song that is uh, pretty ubiquitous now for Main Street, I'm pretty surprised it didn't happen until 85. I know. And uh, yeah, and it, like I said, it was written in 78, so it took them a while to get around to it. And I mean, now it's kind of prevalent. Like you said, it's involved in the trolley shows, other performances daily on Main Street's uh, plural. So uh, We will get to the live ensembles in a bit, but the background music of Main Street is some of the most evocative and distinctive used in any of the theme parks. And that's mostly due to the era from which it harkens back to. One of the biggest artistic expressions of the late Victorian era is the music. This was an era of an explosion of popular music in the United States. In the wake of the first generation of public songwriters led by Stephen Foster, a major publishing infrastructure appeared in New York City. The music industry would be centered around 28th Street in the Flower District of Manhattan, a location that would come to be known as Tin Pan Alley and enjoyed success well into the next century. Tin Pan Alley owed a lot of its success to some major developments in printing through the 19th century that would also feed into the development of other new media, such as the widely distributed newspaper, catalogs and other periodicals, and advertising of all kinds. The other factor would be the incredible popularity of the piano in an era before recorded music. This is the way folks enjoyed music, by either teaching each other songs and hymns or learning them from printed music. 
legendary songwriters such as George M. Cohan, Irving Berlin, George and Ira Gershwin, and more cut their teeth in Tin Pan Alley, writing songs and in some cases performing the songs in stores to plug the music. It's hard to believe you could walk into a music store and see a young George Gershwin playing a new Tin Pan Alley song as a way of promoting it in an era before the radio. Michael, when I hear of song pluggers now, I only think of Trudy and it happened on Fifth Avenue as she was auditioning to be a song plugger. I know. It's such a cool thing to pop up in a movie because it's such a like lost art. I mean, a totally, a totally lost industry that was a huge, mm-hmm. like music publishing, print music publishing was such a huge deal and like this dominant form of entertainment and now it's just completely vanished. Right. I mean, I live make my living off recorded music, but recording music's rise also meant the fall of so many people playing piano and singing in their houses to make their own music with sheet music. It's a little bittersweet. Yeah, it is. These songs and their legacy would last well into the time where Disneyland was being designed and built. They would form the backbone of a lot of films, obviously through period musicals, but also being referenced in almost every movie of the 30s or 40s. You could hear an early Tin Pan Alley song in there somewhere. Yeah, and a lot of these studios owned music publishing companies. I mean, like Warner Brothers did, and most of them did. So they had kind of a racket going where they would give the Tin Pan Alley songwriter to uh, write a song and then title a movie based on the title of the song and then probably have somebody sing that song somewhere in the middle of the movie. So it was kind of a synergy before synergy. Right. And then they would dance the Big Apple to it. (laughs) Exactly. By the mid-century, there was an era of gay 90s revival musicals and films that had the biggest influence of the music you would hear on Main Street for years. The biggest of these, without a doubt, is Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly was a 1964 Broadway musical with music by Jerry Herman that would go on to be a 1969 film that was quite the spectacle. The musical was based in New York City and with art direction by John DeCure, the similarities between Hello Dolly's streetscape and Walt Disney World's would definitely be notable. As opposed to the mostly small-town American scenes that Disney movies at the time would hearken to, Hello Dolly reflected the opulence of New York City. This world of the eastern seaboard Victorian architecture and design would serve as the inspiration for Florida's Main Street USA, and many songs on Hello Dolly would play through the years on Main Street. Put on your Sunday clothes and before the parade passes by have been mainstays. And I suppose it's value added that Wally embraced Hello Dolly so wholeheartedly years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that, a song that I knew, I didn't know it was even from Hello Dolly. And probably Wally came out. And I'm sure a lot of people walking down Main Street think it's from Wally. I know. So, of course, Disney had several movies based in this period. It was a time period near and dear to Walt's heart, and they would return again to this era over and over in film. A few of these movies would be musicals in the 60s whose music would make their way into the Main Street loop for years. Summer Magic would be released in 1963, story of a widow from Boston moving to Maine with her children. The songs for Summer Magic would be an early assignment for the young songwriting tandem of Richard and Robert Sherman, whose father, Al Sherman, was a Tin Pan Alley composer himself. The Shermans had Tin Pan Alley in their DNA, and their songs always fit well within this time period, I think. They were naturals in writing to it. Oh, they were. And if everybody, well, everybody should watch the documentary, The Boys, which is on Disney+. Plus. Yes. Uh, they yes. have a lot of Al Sherman songs in it, 
And man, that is pure Tim Penale, vaudeville kind of wacky kind of stuff. That's right. And Al Sherman was also a song plugger back in the day, so he was he was in the stores. From Summer Magic, we have heard songs Beautiful Beulah, Flitterin, and the title track Summer Magic through the years. And Summer Magic indeed has its influence beyond just the music, which we can discuss a little later. It's almost like Main Street, Florida is the official land of Summer Magic, which is all the more reason to have this movie on Disney+. Plus. Yes, please, please. I love this movie. This is such an overlooked movie. It's such a, I think it's a movie where like nothing much really happens. It's just right. super pleasant. It's funny. It's got Haley Mills. It's got everything going on, and it's got a great soundtrack. I mean, I don't care what you have to do with the Burl Lives Estate, but just get it done. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's figure it out. Uh, let's listen to a couple of these songs in their original Summer Magic state. Here's uh, Flitterin' and Beautiful Beulah from Summer Magic. It's time for flitterin', dusting off the trunk and flitterin' far. Where the grass is greener now and then, comes the time again for flitterin'. We'll soon be packing up, stacking up our dreams and brick a rack for some new destination. Don't know where, but we're going there. We're flittering again. Land of promise, bounteous. This is beautiful, this is beautiful, Beulah. In the rocky state of Maine, land of plenty. This is beautiful, Beulah. Within our reaches there, grapes big as peaches there. The cows and bees are busy. Who makes any money in the land of milk and honey? Sweet apple trees abound, wild cherries all around. Berries on the vine, rambler roses wine, they're so nice. It's a paradise, Beulah. It's so nice. It's so nice. Yeah, that is pure Sherman. Man, so many words. I know. But just uh, effortless somehow. I don't know how they do that, but yeah. it, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Another musical the Shermans would write songs for is 1967's The Happiest Millionaire, a movie based in Philadelphia in the 1910s. The art design of this movie is also superb, and the music, of course, is wonderful. The song's Fortuosity and Let's Have a Drink on It made it to pass loops. Fortuosity still plays, thankfully, which is fitting because Disneyland, after all, has the Fortuosity shop. Yes, it does. Gotta love Fortuosity. I mean, some of us. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of some of our family members. That's right. Another movie that feels almost like a Disney film but is not is the 1962 film The Music Man, which was based on the 1957 play of the same name, written by Meredith Wilson. Now, The Music Man would play a big part in our youth, Michael. Yeah, this is just one of those movies that we taped at just the right age to make a huge, huge impact. And one that really, we just yeah. watched a whole bunch. Yes. Meredith Wilson had a very diverse career. He was a bona fide composer working on symphonies, movies, notably Chaplin's The Great Dictator. He also worked in pop song and as a band leader for radio, particularly the Burns and Allen radio program. <laughs> he briefly had a radio program of his own, which was called Sparkle Time, which I thought I should know. And I never knew he wrote uh, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, which I feel like I should have known, but I didn't. That feels like something I should have known. 
How did we not know that? Because I certainly did not. It's it's wild. So the Music Man was based in River City, Iowa, and mostly filmed on the Warner Brothers lot. And Michael, I've heard where if Walt Disney World's Main Street is Hello Dolly, Disneyland's has to be the Music Man. Yeah, that is a really great comparison because uh, the vibe is uh, for both is super strong. Uh, the Hello Dolly vibe in Florida, the River City, Iowa in out in Anaheim. That's, right. That's a great comparison. The Music Man would be represented in the music in Main Street for years with the songs Wells Fargo Wagon, Light a Rose, and Iowa Stubborn being played. But Meredith Wilson also famously directed the gigantic band at the grand opening of Walt Disney World. 1,076 members, which, I mean, if you haven't seen this, you should look it up. I can't imagine how they ever pulled this off. Yeah, just a feat of <laughs> conducting to make right. that happen at all. Right. Added the songs from the movies mentioned, Little Rogers and Hammerstein with Oklahoma's Surrey with the Fringe on Top, Many a New Day in Kansas City. Now, all these songs were around on Main Street for years on a loop that ran from 1992 through 2012. This came from Disneyland Paris over to all the U.S. castle parks and will forever be plugged into my brainwaves from working City Hall, the tip board, and parade control. Because of that, because I have ties to a lot of these musicals, it will always be the gold standard for me. Another great part of this soundtrack is the included work from the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. The orchestra claims to be the world's only year-round professional ensemble recreating America's original music, the syncopated sounds of early musical theater, silent cinema, and vintage dance. Band leader Rick Benjamin discovered thousands of scores in 1985 of Arthur Pryor, a band leader and trombonist who performed in the John Philip Sousa Band. The Paragon Ragtime Orchestra is still active and they are fantastic. Behind us is playing the That Epidemic Rag, which I thought was appropriate for this. It's fitting, yeah. yeah. Now, before the loop that debuted in 1992, there was an older loop that no doubt came from the background music master himself, Jack Wagner. This loop was mostly based on recordings from Albert White and his Gaslight Orchestra, from records released in the late 1950s and early 1960s. For the Crystal Palace, a more sedate loop exists consisting of other great music such as André Rieu and Maastricht Salon Orchestra, the Tea Time Ensemble, and the Palm Court Theatre Orchestra. All great music. In 2012, Dean Mora conducted a re-recording of the Main Street Loop at Capitol Studios, keeping about half the old selections and adding half back. Unfortunately, we lost our summer magic in a lot of these mid-century musicals, but the new loop does sound fantastic and brings back into the fold a lot of older songs, some George Cohan and Tim Pan Alley, and even Michael Giacchino's Married Life from Up sneaks right in with the consistent arrangement. And luckily, we have some Hello Dolly to keep us grounded. Uh, but Michael, that old loop will always be my jam. Yeah, it's 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 hard to beat that loop. And uh, the summer magic, I, I can't do without the summer magic. So that makes it automatically superior in my book. That's right. But they did a good job in the recording. It's, it sounds very nice. But that is a look at some of the music you may hear when you're walking right down the middle of Main Street, USA. Out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers Way out there beyond this hick town, Barnaby There's a slick town, Barnaby Out there, full of shine and full of sparkle 
close your eyes and see it Listen, Barnaby Listen, Barnaby Put on your Sunday clothes There's lots of world out there Get out the brilliant teen and dime cigars We're gonna find adventure in the evening air Girls in white in a perfume night With the lights are bright as the stars Put on your Sunday clothes We're gonna ride through town In one of those new horse-drawn open cars We'll see the shows at Delmonico's And we'll close the town in a world And we won't come home until we kiss a girl since we're talking Main Street this month, we thought we'd ask a few questions of our interviewee for this month's Progress City Town Hall, Mr. Eddie Sato, a few questions about his experience on Main Street and how Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and Disneyland Paris compare. Eddie, as you probably know, was the lead designer on Disneyland Paris's Main Street, USA, a gorgeous, gorgeous, ornate, and elaborate land in and of itself. And uh, we just thought we'd hear what he had to say. Well, this month on our podcast, we're talking a little Main Street at Walt Disney World for the 50th anniversary. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on what made the Florida version of Main Street set apart from its predecessor. Yeah. You know, it's it's such an interesting thing. I've been asked that before, and... I, I've been thinking about it, is that especially when when I was studying the different main streets to figure out Paris, and of course, every park, at least in my little opinion, is that it needs to match its audience. We are putting on a show here, and it's not about architecture. It's about theater, and we have to think of it in those terms. Now, Walt Disney was applying, of course, Main Street, which is only 50 years from the real 1890s when he opened <laughs> it in 1955. So it was it's like kind of doing the 80s today, right? So he was trying to create this innocence. And if you look at it, the main street of Disneyland is rather toy-like. It's rather childlike. And, and frankly, a little bit on the simplistic side, if you look at the Victorian detailing, if you compare real San Francisco and the production value of facades in San Francisco, I mean, those buildings are far more detailed than the, than the simpleness of a small town. And so what I think the designers captured in that first main street was this simplicity childlike simplicity in the design, in the color. And that's why the forest perspective works so well because it's almost toy-like. It isn't ominous like real Victorian buildings would be in Iowa or any other place where they could be really, really big. They're, they make you a bit of a child again. And that's kind of the, the emotion you want in that Main Street. And they did a beautiful job of that. you know. And it does have that, that toy-like innocence to it. Moving forward to Walt Disney World, you know, uh, the designers there, I feel like the production designers, you kind of without Walt directly involved, you know, now it's a little bit more of a movie. We're kind of doing this by the book, that Fox research department. We're, 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 we're going to be a little closer to that because they're leaning on that. So that's why you end up with all these references, the, um, the city hall from Philadelphia being the Disney World city hall. Um, the United States Hotel of Saratoga Springs, having that resort feel of, of the eastern seaboard. But it's much more literal. It's much more lifted. 
um, that detail is much more one-to-one, even though the buildings are scaled down. I know I'm getting way in the weeds to your question, but as you move down the street, then you've got, you know, frankly, one of my favorite Disney buildings of all time is this lift of the Crystal Palace of the San Francisco um, Golden Gate Park, that gorgeous greenhouse there. So you look at these, the, botanic, the botanical gardens there. So you look at those references and it's kind of like it grew up. Walt Disney World's Main Street kind of matured. It kind of grew up. Yes, it's still optimistic. It's still Americana. But there's a certain maturity to it at Walt Disney World. You know, there's some greats. You've mentioned some of them, the first generation of Imagineers that were involved in the making of the Magic Kingdom and Main Street. I was curious if, if who are some of the unsung Imagineers we may not know about who are responsible for that Main Street? Well, Tom Morris is writing a book that will give you the definitive list, and I applaud him for that. I mean, the people at the Dinosaur Lunch were the ones who reminded me how much architecture was lifted in Disneyland Paris because they did the original. So Bill Martin really had a lot of responsibility on uh, Walt Disney World's Main Street. Frederick Hope Sr. and uh, and Jr. was involved as an art director, but he was Frederick Hope Sr. worked on the Crystal Palace. But but primarily, if you look at the drawings, Bill Martin, I believe Ted Rich. There was, there was different other designers involved in, in that. I think Dick Klein possibly worked on Tokyo, but I, I don't want to throw too many names out if I'm not remembering it accurately. Sure, sure. But I feel like, you know, emotionally, Walt Disney World's scale increased a little bit, where you had real practical second floors to these buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and Walt Disney World kind of matured a little bit. And it makes sense because if the castle's going to grow that big, you can't go in transition right. from this little dinky Main Street to this monolithic castle soaring above it. I mean, that wouldn't make sense. So the Main Street matured. And it was the art directors this time. I think it was the production designers' cinematic version. And frankly, Walt Disney World's Main Street's a lot closer to that Hello Dolly set than Disneyland's, that's for sure. So then we moved to Paris. And when I look at at both of those, um, I was being asked to copy, literally lift, as much of Walt Disney World as possible. So it was kind of my job to do that. And then transitioned it into Paris. But Walt Disney World's design well, a lot of it was derived from that resort. Um, you know, like Coney Island has a little bit of a town to it from where you get off a trolley or a shuttle to the actual boardwalk. There's a town, there's a main street to that. So in coming up with the Paris story, it was like the railroad had built a depot to bring tourists. And now you need a transition a town street leading you to the entertainment. That's the attitude I took in using Disney World's Main Street and importing some of it to Paris. Town Square's 100% unique. Right. But that one little, the four blocks of Main Street, other than the motors and a few, any, anywhere I could get away with getting rid of it, I did. But, you know, to, to make it feel different or more American, we did. I know that's getting into Paris, but I, I love Walt Disney World's Main Street. To me... As a, you know, person who likes to have, you know, a side of ornament for breakfast with the, you know, it's the <laughs> bacon that goes with the scrambled eggs, having a side of uh, meringue. It's the meringue. It literally looks like you could break it off and eat it. That Walt Disney World Main Street. It's just so beautiful. Well, so like you said, using these designs for Paris, did you have any notable interactions with the people who created uh, these designs? 
Absolutely. Well, Fred Hope Sr. was at that dinosaur lunch. Bill Martin, I think we brought him in to do some interior elevations. Um, just he was retired, but he gladly came in to do a little bit of that. But I would question these people. You know, I would look at that. I would look I would look to the films for color more than that Main Street because you have the bleached, mm -hmm. super bright sun of Florida and you want to think right. of color and move on from that. So we were changing some of the colors of the buildings to work with the skies of Europe. It was a different different assignment really sure, sure. well i have a personal question how much involved were you in uh selecting the loop for the paris main street that would come back to uh the u.s parks um well i was i was involved at disneyland the minute i came back tony kind of parked me for safety purposes in a safe little haven down there down at disneyland with the show team there so immediately we started importing disneyland paris into the rehab of main street which was already scheduled so we brought wall coverings we brought colors we brought details soundtracks for the upstairs windows and that musical loop all came to disneyland casey's corner kind of gibson girl ends up down there disney and company turns into the penny arcade I mean, you, uh, all everything on the east side were all the wall coverings of Disneyland Paris. All that stuff was kind of like one big, because I was overseeing it, frankly. It was all one big package. But I chose the music for Paris. Most of, most of the music, most of all the music was, unless it was produced already, was chosen for Paris. And I, I did that myself personally. Oh, wow. But I love it. I play it on my, I have all these loops on my personal deck and just, you know, sometimes when I want to hear it, I'll put on the, the music loop. We had a nighttime loop, which was much quieter and more sedate. Yeah. A tucking you in loop with little musical uh, music machines and musical bells and much more laid back. And, of course, the march up Main Street, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I'd love to hear, you know, as you said, Casey's Corner, you know, that would come to Walt Disney World. And, you know, the music loop, there's a there's a railroad announcer at the train station you may be familiar with. I mean, how did that feel to influence that land? I mean, you saw Main Street under construction in Florida. Uh, what was it like to kind of influence it on that scale? Well, kind of a dream come true. I mean, you know, I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, that especially the soundtracks. I mean, by the way, we did interior music. The stores in Disneyland, as I recall, did not have individual. We had 11 hours of different music from Scott Joplin in the arcades to band organs in Disney and company to custom done um, in the tradition of crazy auto, which is this barrel house piano, custom music for Gibson's everything heartland music to play in the Victoria's, you know, chicken pot pie restaurant. So it sounded more Midwestern. Everything was like music, 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 but um, yeah. And, and of course, to get to be even in a little way a Disney character and do the, you know, now arriving from a grand circle trip around the Magic <laughs> Kingdom. People ask me now, well, wait a minute. It's not really a Magic Kingdom. I go, well, but that was the spiel. That's always been what this said. You just say mm -hmm. that, you know. Even Disneyland was called the Magic Kingdom. If that's right, what the script right. originated. But yeah, oh no. And to to be all those voices and, and shrunken net at Disneyland and all that was, that was... Oh, it's so fun to sit on a bench and listen to other people or watch other people respond to some of those voices and crazy things in the windows. And, you know, I will say it's surreal walking uh, down 
Main Street at Disneyland with you and then going to the dentist's office and hearing <laughs> hearing you come. <laughs> Dr. Molaire, Dr. Molaire. No, 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 no. We had laughing gas and all that stuff. It's yeah. quite an experience, yes. Oh no. And the and the guy in the shower. Yeah, Did you right. ever hear that? There's it's at Disneyland and and Disneyland Paris the guy in the shower is uh the hot, this, the the water is way too. I used to have problems in the hotel. I would turn the water on and just fry myself. So that'd be kind of a funny gag. Is just to hear someone in the shower singing, and then the song changes the minute the hot water hits them. You know, so. You know, you mentioned earlier how close it, the, you know, Disneyland's opening was to the time period that Main Street's based on. And we're so much further than that now. I mean, what do you attribute the appeal to these days for that? And, you know, you tried to move that forward a couple of decades. I mean, should designers think that way now? I mean, is there just an inherent appeal to that time period? I think that the Victorian thing has become a bit of a Disney margarine. It's a bit of, it's the butter you spread all over something when you want to make it look Disney. And the main gate, let's just put a Victorian green iron thing on it and it'll look just, oh, we're at Disney World now because no one else would do this. Look, it's expensive or something. I don't know. But Main Street's kind of become the Disney mall. It really has. And that's the that's the shape language of the Disney mall is this Victorian-ish something. Because I would challenge many guests to, really reference a lot of that, you know, but they love it and it's warm and it's reassuring and it's the small town. And so people read it in many different ways. So if you put that aside for a moment, but when we think of the different main streets, they do want to match their audience like Tokyo's world bizarre, you know, which is a bit bizarre, you know, is, is everything that's good about America. It's kind of an Americana statement. So uh, when you look at the, the 50 year difference from 1955 to, you know, 1905 of Main Street when the cars were first arriving on city streets, you know, um, I think it's an interesting parallel. We could we could definitely go back to the 80s, but would I make it look like modern architecture of the 80s? No, because I don't know. There's still small, pretty towns that were from the 80s. If you look at Mayberry and Andy Griffith, which is I feel like is a television Main Street, small town, if you can mm -hmm. reference that, you know, it was the 1960s, early 60s, late 50s in a town. Frankly, it's a backlot that was designed from Gone with the Wind. It was the 40 acres backlot of MGM or RKO. So I feel like you could do even the 20s Main Street was going to do this. You could do a lot of different layers of different time periods of design and create a very reassuring street. It looks like your hometown and mixes in. Yeah, there's a there's a building here that's a little later that's from the 40s or 50s or mid-century or something. But you could do a little bit of that squeezed in here and there, very much like the primetime cafe fits in to the Disney Studios, which has that beautiful right. Hollywood street. I find that very romantic. Of course, I love California Spanish, but you know, I would say most people find that to be a nostalgic, glamorous period street. So can you move the clock forward? Yes. Would I? Yes. Maybe you go into a hardware store that's reminiscent of something that has all the cool, or a toy store that has everything you remember from 
Hasbro or Mattel. Hmm. I mean, yeah. like I would love to go into the Hot Wheels store. Mm-hmm. I would like think that's the coolest thing. And you go, wow, I'm going to go into this old Hot Wheels store and it has all the original Hot Wheels and Hot Rods or something like that. Or if Main Street Motors was had a, a, a car from another period. Blast from the past, a Disneyland event was incredibly successful. Do you make it look like 1950? Well, no, but it could be a town with layers. I think there's room to explore it and do it in a way that um, that people go crazy for, that their memories would be rewarded, you know? Sure. I just don't know that button shoes has the appeal that Hot Wheels does or other things. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, that's what Main Street is. I mean, really, literally, Main yeah. Street's like, well, let's go back and look at, there's the Podbelly stove and we can all play checkers, you know? Well, maybe there's, maybe the market house as, you know, every great extinct candy you can rem- imagine. Ooh, I want those candy, I, you know, and we just, just start thinking of nostalgia, how cool that could be. Sure. Or rec- vinyl records. I mean, come on. Right. When you want to go to the Disney, the one-of-a-kind shop could be this amazing vinyl record store, like here in L.A., Amoeba, or something like that. But you do it in, in a beautiful movie set quality, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I, I think there's so much... So much that can be done, but it is just an interesting thought process to think that for the original Imagineers looking back on their youth, you know, the Imagineers of today, the equivalent time period would be the early 70s. And that's just really shocking to think about, you know. So right, uh, but it's funny. If you went back in time, Michael, to the 70s, or Jeff, you go back to the 70s, doesn't the 70s also contain things that are looking back from that era? Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. An antique oh, yeah. shop in a 70s Main Street goes back even further. So there's kind of something mm-hmm. for everyone. So if I was going to do the 70s, I would have this charming town. You know, it could be Iowa in the 70s, right? And you could see that town, and then inside of that would be other things. Let's take a look around. There's the city hall, quaint and dignified with its post office, the place where the citizens of the town gather to exchange gossip and hear the latest news of the day. Fire station, (laughs) that's a special interest of the volunteer bucket brigade, whose horse-drawn engine and up-to-date hose and chemical wagon are a source of real local pride. Then there's the car barn housing the horse-drawn streetcar a great boon to speedy transportation, and that little old streetcar will be going up and down Main Street here in Disneyland about every 10 or 15 minutes, day in and day out. It goes by a whole flock of very interesting and quaint little stores. There's the Emporium, where a lady could buy Lyle stockings or a silver button hook, or for a dollar, the new pair of tan high-button shoes. Main Street, USA, and every one of those buildings is five-eighths real size. The doorways, of course, and the windows are full size, but the buildings themselves are five-eighths. The people you see up and down the street, however, are full-size people. They were not made by Walt Disney. The old-time music shop should be in there somewhere. If you were a court and a gal, that's where you buy your mandolin or your banjo and start tuning it up for the Sunday canoe ride. Oh, you kid, 23 skidoo. <laughs> The town square is where the band holds forth, and those free band concerts were one of the big social highlights of the week, any week. Or the Grand Opera House, where a Jenny Lind or a Chautauqua lecture might take place. And if you were daring, you might go out 
with your girl for a ride in an 1898 locomobile, the hot rod of its day. Is that one coming up Main Street? Why, yes, and Bob Cummings is aboard. Take it away, Bob. Now, here I am down here on Main Street. I got my whole family with me, my lovely wife, Mary, and my daughter, Melinda, and, and Bob. You know, this is a Main Street, ladies and gentlemen, just like my grandma used to tell me about back in Joplin, Missouri. Sometimes she had a whole penny for herself to spend on a Saturday night. Now, all these stores are different. For instance, now, right over here is the Candy Palace. Now, that's probably where Grandma got those licorice whips and the jujubes. And, of course, right next door to the left is the Penny Arcade, which is complete with all sorts of shooting galleries and kinetoscopes. A kinetoscope, in case you don't know, is the forerunner of the original silent motion picture. And, of course, is the bake shop. And then there's the jams and jelly stores. Mom, old Grandma certainly loved those, those tarts and those rich lady fingers. Of course, on the corner is the ice cream store. I guess next to Mary and Grandpa, the biggest thrill she ever had was to, um, was to have a dish of Tutti Frutti ice cream and a sarsaparilla. And of course, over on the corner across the street is an old-fashioned popcorn machine, if you can see it through the crowd. And say, on the Gibson greeting card corner right there, I think is a monkey and, and an organ grinder. I can't quite see him now. Oh, here he is, there, right in front of the Swift Market House. That's where all of us ham actors will originally wind up. And say, if you can pan your camera down here a little further, here is one of the most famous motion picture theaters in the world. It'll be here at Disneyland. They run exactly six, six silent motion pictures at once at the theater. Your camera's just coming around on it now, I can see. And believe me, if Grandma was here, she'd come and see uh, one of the series of Perils of Pauline tonight. Say, as a matter of fact, this is so interesting, Art. I think I'll take the whole family out right now and take a look at it. What do you say, huh? Thank you, Bob Cummings, for that word picture. But right now, we got to get back here. This month, we're taking time to remember the magic of Main Street's past. Main Street is an area that's seen a lot of change over the years, not only in its lineup of shops, but in the attractions it has offered. It might be hard to believe today, but at one point, Main Street had its own small roster of attractions, and you could actually spend quite a bit of time there seeing the sights. The gateway to the park in Main Street is the station for the Walt Disney World Railroad and it announces the scale and aesthetic of Florida's Main Street right off the bat. Disneyland's Main Street, as we mentioned previously, is quaint and Midwestern, where Florida's is grand and more centered around the eastern seaboard Victorian style. This station is modeled off the train station in Saratoga Springs, New York, built, ironically, in 1871. Jeff, uh, you showed me a picture of this thing, and it's uncanny. It is a dead ringer. They just lifted it. It's great. The building that is now the Town Square Theater was, when the Magic Kingdom opened, known as the Gulf Hospitality House. Gulf had been announced as the official petroleum of Walt Disney World in 1970, 
and the partnership brought golf branding to the Walt Disney World Car Care Center. It also included sponsorship of the Hospitality House and the Walt Disney Story. Although the Walt Disney Story was originally announced as an opening day attraction for the Magic Kingdom, it wouldn't make its debut until May 6, 1973. Walt and Roy's wives, Lillian and Edna, were on hand for the festivities, which ironically occurred during the Magic Kingdom celebration of Senior Citizens Week. You know, I've tried to look around and see why this took a couple of years to make it out, but uh, I, I haven't figured out why, but it was hyped well before opening as something that would be there on opening day. So I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, we've talked about this. It just, and and I'm glad that we have One Man's Dream now. I mean, One Man's Dream is better than the Walt Disney story, but yeah. what a great place uh, for this to be. I mean, just the gateway to Walt Disney World uh, for all purposes. You know, at that point, you have the Walt Disney story. It's really great, and on, and on Main Street, too. But also, Michael, I did not know that uh, Lillian remarried until I was reading about the opening of the Walt Disney story. Right. Shocking. Uh, Lillian Disney trillions. Yeah. Uh, I found that out a few years ago and, uh, in, in a similar way, because I was like, I saw her mention in something as, you know, Lillian Disney. I was like, what is trillions? Who is that? Right. Right. And I don't know how I went most of my life without knowing that she had remarried because it is never talked about. Well, she seemed very linked to his legacy even after she remarried. So, yeah, absolutely. Clearly wasn't an issue. But man, I, yeah, no idea. Guess they were keeping it on the down low or something. Right, I don't know. Right. A real Onassis situation yes, going on here. Yes. Uh, very strange. I'll also point out uh, as a sidebar that. In some of the very early notes of what would be in the Magic Kingdom Park, and some of the very early predictions, we're talking like 67, 68, uh, Marty Sklar had written that there would be a Art of Disney animation exhibit on Main Street. The Walt Disney oh, Store wow. was not yet an idea. There would be an Art of Disney animation that would be updated based on the most uh, recent animated film and kind of promote that. So... That's a sort of what could have been. That would have been great, too. Uh, you would enter the Walt Disney Story through the little shaded walkway that now leads from the exit of the Town Square Theater's post-show merchandise shop. Inside, you would find a display of awards and memorabilia which trace Roy and Walt's careers, as well as artifacts from the company's showbiz history, Mouseketeer, items, and other things. One prominent item on display was the Oscar, with its seven mini-statuettes, that had been presented to Walt for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And in the post-show area, you could find the Lily Bell steam engine from Walt's Backyard Railroad. Oh, so cool. Yeah, really cool. Uh, stuff that's in the Family Museum now, you could, or in the archives, you could see right there at Disney World. Very nice. Outside the theater, there was a massive character mural by legendary Disney artist Bill Justice. Now, this mural, where the cast member would stand while welcoming guests to the show, featured characters from every Disney animated feature. Uh, over time, as new films were released, the starring characters of the film were added. This was such a cool thing. It was amazing. And uh, this continued until The Great Mouse Detective in 1986. Yeah, I mean, you could just walk right up to it. It's beautiful and huge. It was, it was such a cool idea. Yeah, it was. And it was just so neat that you would know it would 
uh, I, Bill Justice updated it for a long time. And uh, just neat that you would know when something new would come out that uh, it would be featured. So that was always fun. Right. Walt Disney's story itself was screened in two twin theaters, each seating 300 people. After an opening narration by Pete Renaday, always good to hear Pete, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the story was told in Walt's own words, culled from multiple interviews that had been recorded over the years. Now, this film uh, was good for its time. I, As you say, One Man's Dream is better, I believe, uh, probably because technology and their collection of stuff over time is better. But this was a really like a widescreen presentation. And it's been hard to have it presented on him video because it was a really wide, a widescreen process. But I do think One Man's Dream is better, don't you? Yes, I do. But uh, like I said, the location of this is hard to beat. I'm glad that, you know, it gives the studio some history. But, you know, just walking right in there on Main Street and having it be kind of the thesis of the whole thing was it's just hard to beat. Be nice if they could somehow um, bring it over to the Magic Kingdom and have it in the back there where it's almost like you could still go into a theater back there. And uh, it would Yeah, be it's like, could you make One Man's Dream into a more of a museum and have the film be the Walt Disney story? You know, maybe they could exist separately, but... Yeah, it would be a nice touch. Yeah. After the film, uh, an exhibit area featured a gallery showing the history of audio animatronic technology. This is where the famous animatronic of Hoot Gibson was, an owl designed by Mark Davis, uh, who would give a brief spiel about animatronics that also served as a plug for the then-in-development Western River Expedition. Yes, please. Yes. Don't tease me, man. I know. Hoot. Also on display was a large model of Walt Disney World, originally housed in the resort's preview center. Now, this uh, was the one that had the Asian Hotel and all the future resorts on it for quite a bit of time. Wow. There was also a display featuring art for Walt's vision of Epcot, all those famous Ryman pieces, uh, which was still on the horizon at the time. And that uh, Western River Expedition model would stay around for years in there, right? I mean, it would just get uh, walled over. Is that correct? From what I've heard? Yeah. He, uh, Hoot would get repurposed to talk about different things. And then at some point he just got walled in and remained there for a long, long time, uh, <laughs> until he was sort of rediscovered. And even I believe as lately as when they totally redid the thing for the town square theater, like the rack uh, that like ran him. Uh, some of the equipment was still in the basement below. If, if I remember correctly, that I think it's wild. That. So, uh, he stuck around for quite, quite a time. The gallery and the post show would change many times over the years as new projects came and went for a year before Epcot center opened the Walt Disney story aired a brief promo film for the upcoming park and displays about it filled the post show gallery. A similar strategy was taken to preview the Disney MGM studios before it opened which I don't remember at all, strangely enough. I don't know why. I don't remember it. Something we should remember. Uh, and I, I personally do remember that at some point in the early 90s, there was a display promoting all the projects then promised for the Disney decade, mm -hmm. uh, which is where we saw art for Russia, Switzerland, and space pavilions that were planned for Epcot. Still can't believe they did this, and it was so exciting. I mean, just to think that Russia was coming, Switzerland was coming, uh just seemed like it was definitely going to happen. Yeah, it was super exciting. 
At some point in here, too, they had that big model of Tomorrowland, what became the 1994 redo, but it was even more ambitious, had flying saucers and the Astronomer's Club, where uh, the Noodle Station would be later, and all sorts of things. So a lot of things promised here that were very, very exciting. The Walt Disney Story closed in 1992, I can't believe it was that long ago, and was replaced for a while with an annual passholder processing center, but the space was revived in 1996 as a gallery celebrating the 25th anniversary of Walt Disney World. This was where you would get your souvenir button and artwork print and see a film promoting the then-in-the-works attractions such as Animal Kingdom and the Disney Cruise Line. Cross the sea. Cross the sea. Uh, this is sort of uh, incredibly vague previews, but right. it, was, it was exciting at the time. Yes. Eventually, the pre-show gallery was closed off, and the post-show area became used for Kodak-sponsored photo ops. One of the Walt Disney Story auditoriums remained open to guests, and you could walk in and enjoy the air conditioning while watching old animated Disney shorts from the early days. I like that. That was... That's yeah, a good use of the space. It kind of became the de facto uh, Main Street Cinema at that time. It did. It did. Uh, now, this eventually closed as well, making room for the Town Square Theater photo op, which opened in 2011, 10 years ago. I can't that is not That still feels brand new to me. Uh, yeah, me too. You know, the building is so big that it's in. It's a hospitality house that served as another sort of City Hall in the early days of the Magic Kingdom. You could get all kinds of information about Walt Disney World and other area attractions back when Disney was a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a giant version of the Paul Hartley Walt Disney World fun mat, which is such a great piece. So it was hung up on there in Town Square. And the rest of the room served as a lounge between the desk and the Town Square Cafe. As the exterior of the building is based on several hotels in Saratoga, namely the United States Hotel. This space feels a little bit like the hotel lobby of Main Street. And in fact, for a while, this was labeled on early maps as the Main Street Hotel, with concept art of the lobby by the legendary Dorothea Redmond. The Hospitality House building is the only one on Main Street that is full-scale building. And that serves to block the contemporary from Main Street, but it's interesting to think about what a hotel would have been like on Main Street years before that idea would be realized in Disneyland Paris. Yes, and I have always wondered how long that idea persevered, uh, how right. quickly they gave up on it, because it seems like a natural. And, and man, uh, that space uh, for years is just such a cool little relaxing space. You know, we sit on that porch, um, you know, that people be coming out of the Walt Disney story or whatever was there at that point in time, but... Just a really slow pace for considering you could watch all those people going by in and out of the park. It's a, it's a great place. Yeah, It's a wonderful place to sit and rock while people stream by like racing to get somewhere and like running over each other and, you know, get some popcorn, sit there and rock. It's great. So now, yeah, another road trip challenge is to go up to Saratoga and sit on the porch of the, uh, which is, I think it's now called the Adelphi hotel. Oh um, yeah. Go sit on the real genuine article and compare one of the aspects of main street. I like is when the function mirrors the design. And uh, one of my favorite iterations of this is the old main street bank, which you would see if you came out the other tunnel under the train station on your left uh, for many years, 
after Disney World's opening, it was either unlabeled or simply attached to City Hall on guide maps. It did sit across the lovely tour guide gardens directly outside of City Hall. But in 1978, Sunbank would open a branch of this building, open a branch in this building, and there you could cash traveler's checks, exchange foreign currency, or cash checks. Uh, these days, it's a chamber of commerce. It's where you can pick up your packages at the end of your day. But man, I always thought it was so cool that it was a real bank in there. I know. It was really neat. And they had the fun thing I thought about it was, you know, they had the the counter facing forward that was guest facing, which was like an old timey bank. But in the back, there was a counter facing the other way that was like just sort of like a felt like a post office or something that served cast members. So cool. And uh, when I was there on college program and, you know, you didn't have direct deposit. Banking was much more, I don't know, analog than it is right. today. You would have to ca go cash your check at the Sun Bank because, you know, my bank that I had didn't have branches in Florida. So uh, you'd have to go to Sun Bank. And a couple of times I went and cashed my paycheck in the back of the Sun Bank. So I, I miss cool. it. You could either go to the Nunes Sun Bank or the Main Street that's, Sun Bank. That's where I would usually go to the Nunes Sun Bank. But sometimes I'd hit up Main Street. Um, and this point, one point was the art of Disney store too, correct? Yes. Yes, it was. It was after, after it quit being a bank, it was uh, art of Disney for a while. Yeah. So I, I, that was really cool. And we couldn't have a main street episode without stopping by city hall where I was gainfully employed at the turn of this century. Uh, city hall is one of the least changed places at Walt Disney world since it opened. You have the wonderful artwork of the Golden Spike celebration from the Hall of Presidents, another great piece celebrating the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, portraits of Lincoln and Washington, and some great pictures of Walt and Roy. City Hall, like the main blocks of Main Street, has actual offices on the upper levels, a little perk of the larger scale compared to Disneyland's Main Street, and the roof and clock tower at the top of City Hall mirror Philadelphia City Hall, which opened in 1901. And that building is an incredible building. I remember the first time I toured in Philadelphia, I was like, hey, that's City Hall, except it's huge. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's something else. It's just fun to see the places they pulled these things from. And, you know, City Hall, great place, lots of memories. Oh, yeah. Another classic Main Street attraction, which has been lost to the ages, is the Main Street Cinema. This was another of those wonderful, chill attractions you could just duck into and enjoy the peace and quiet for a while with no wait. You could stand in the center of the room surrounded by five separate screens which showed different silent films, all while period-appropriate music played. Steamboat Willie was the only Disney film showed in those early days, amazingly. The others were an early version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Thomas Edison's The Great Train Robbery, the Rounders, which starred Fatty Arbuckle and Charlie Chaplin, and Crashing Through. By the 1990s, they had all been replaced by classic Disney cartoons, when the theater began to be threatened by the wave of closures and commercialization that swept through Main Street and wiped out all of its attractions in the 1990s. In June 1998, the cinema was turned into a shop. Its screens were eventually removed. Although at one point, it was the Virtual Magic Kingdom that's right. To stop <laughs> in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, the cinema's really prominently featured in the grand opening celebration of uh, Walt Disney World with Julie Andrews singing in there. It's yes, a real highlight yes, on it. Yes, it is. I just never understood why they needed to turn off the 
movies. You know, you could have a shop in there and have the movies playing. They had that That's for right. a while. I mean, yeah, f- for a while they had uh, like previews of upcoming attractions, I think. And maybe then it was on one screen, but I right, don't think right. there's any anything playing there now. But I agree, there are ways to do it. And uh, I'd love to see this come back. Disneyland still has it, which is great. It's just and, such a small area. Like, it just seems like you could have the movies playing. exactly (laughs) an even earlier casualty of the main street purge was the penny arcade truly fantastic experience which was eliminated in 1995 to become retail space the special thing about this arcade is that while it did in the rear have some modern games it had tons of unique antique machines which and this was amazing as a kid you could play for a mere penny that's right i mean that can't I can't even t- as a kid of the eighties used to spilling quarters into a machine and uh, loving that to uh, be able to use pennies for something and get something for it. That's right. It was amazing. It was so it was. good. And this was such a cool space where it just uh, kind of went around uh, the refreshment corner, so it ended up on the other side, you know, facing the hub. So just a lot of great area for. Cool games, old games, new games, all of it. Yeah, it really did wrap around. And some of the newer stuff was back kind of where seating for Casey's is now. That's right. It uh, kind of went from the old old stuff up front, the authentic things, uh, to the newer machines in the back. Oh, so great. One of the stars of the Penny Arcade was the Wurlitzer Phillips Pian Orchestra, built in 1911. This massive orchestra in a box would play music from paper rolls for just a shiny penny. Unfortunately, this masterpiece, along with a massive collection of Disney-owned music machines, were sold off around 1997. Oh, and it's a shame. This was always one of my favorites. Um, They did have one of these up in the Main Street train station for years. I don't know if it's still there, but... um, I believe it is still there. I think it was the last time I remember checking. The big one was nuts in the Penny Arcade. It's like a whole size of a wall. Yes, yes, yes. And just an entire one-man band all in one machine. Just an incredible piece of machinery. But uh, sadly, uh, lost. Uh, I I found a website that traced down where it is today. And uh, so that'll be another field trip to go visit the Piano Orchestra. Another worthwhile stop in the Penny Arcade were the large row of viewing machines known as mutoscopes and kaleoscopes, which showed little moving pictures courtesy of a bank of printed photos which, when flipped, would make a movie. Mutoscopes were the ones where you had to crank by hand, while the kaleoscopes were a later development that flipped automatically. Most of the films were of the slapstick variety and included Yes, We Have No Bananas, A Raid on a Watermelon Patch, Oh, teacher, and Brigitte on a bike. Thankfully, some of the machines have survived and are still viewable in the Main Street train station. So yeah. check those out. I think they got Oh, teacher up there for sure. Yeah, I think so. Uh, one last attraction was actually a store, but it was so cool that it could qualify as an attraction itself. This was the House of Magic. This sold, no surprise, magic tricks and spooky masks and other gags. As a little kid, I was really into magic, and 
it was neat to have a place where the cast members would show you how to do tricks, and you could also buy tricks to take home. This one also closed in 1995, along with the Penny Arcade and the Main Street Bookstore, to become the Main Street Athletic Club retail location. This was a cool store. Yeah, it was just cool to have different little nooks and crannies uh, in here where you could see all kinds of different things. And now it's it's more homogenized, and I think that's just the nature of it. But it, it was that old ethos of shops as attractions uh, in and of themselves. I mean, exactly. Cool. And this was not, like, as you said, nooks and crannies. This was not a large store. It was basically the counter. And you kind of went in, and there was a counter where the cast member was behind the counter. And I think there was maybe a door where you could go into the store behind it. But it was not very large, but it right. had a lot of fun stuff. I just love there was a time when the Magic Kingdom had multiple places that sold spooky masks. Yes. Like, you could get your, like, rubber Phantom of the Opera mask in, like, two different places for some reason. Right, right. Very strange. I like to uh, collect old vacation slides whenever they pop up online, and it's funny to see the similarities in what different families chose to photograph. In the first couple of decades of the Magic Kingdom, there are some things that almost literally every person chose to document. And oddly, one of those was the Center Street Flower Market, which was situated at the midpoint of Main Street off to the left as you face the castle. Uh, This collection of artificial flowers featured a few benches to sit and take your picture. And boy, people sure took them up on it, including our family. Yes. Yes. Multiple times. Multiple times. Everybody took pictures at the flower market. There are almost as many flower market photos as there are of the castle itself. It's crazy to me. It just makes me wonder. It's like it's the first kind of breathable space you come to in the magic kingdom i guess you know if you're being funneled in and it's pretty you know is that why it's so (laughs) maybe i was thinking that exact same thing like especially back in the day you only got so many pictures on your camera you you're a little loosey-goosey at the start of the day right at the end of the day you're holding on for dear life because you've only got a few left but at the start you're like oh this uh, this is pretty let's take a few pictures here that's right It's uh, an early draw. Center Street was a nice little alcove where the original Magic Kingdom barbershop was located down at the end. It was always a quiet respite from the traffic on the main drag, but West Center Street also fell victim to retail expansion and was entirely enclosed as a new addition to the Emporium in 2001. And this was really sad for me when that happened. I mean, I was a... You know, I always used to go to the Harmony Barbershop on Center Street, get my hair cut. Loved that version of it because people would barely even know it was there. Yeah. And every once in a while, somebody would come in and look around and they'd be so confused. They couldn't believe it was a real barbershop. And, you know, the barber would always joke that, you know, people thought they were audio animatronics. I mean, people would ask if it was a real barbershop, but it was just so out of the way. Um, also cool on that side of center street was they had a little kind of barn looking place and the street kind of curved a little bit. So it just looked like it kept on going Yes, uh, as opposed yeah. to the, the other center, center street where it kind of dead ends into the, you know, wrought iron new Orleans kind of, uh, rail, but, uh, yeah, that one, it looked kind of like it kept going. Yeah, there was a lot of great implied space back there. And a lot of facades for shops that weren't actually shops. 
yeah it re- it really had a feeling of uh, of of great space back there so i i miss it a lot uh, with all the talk of retellocations, we should mention some of the old shops of yore that have been lost to consolidation. Uh, of course, there's the Emporium, which has been there since day one and is still there, only grown over the years, um, run by a proprietor, Osh Popham. That's right, from Summer Magic. Summer Magic. He must have moved up in the world after the movie. And you know, so. it said his, uh, you know, the the sisters. Uh, run the chapeau shop which is uh, has 63 on it which was the year summer magic came out so. uh, very Disney's nice summer very magic nice. official land it it really is get it on disney plus that's right one of the stores that was later absorbed by the emporium was the old new century clock shop featuring elgin clocks and watches uh, there was the greenhouse on west center street which sold artificial and real plants, as well as pottery. And imagine going to the Magic Kingdom and coming out with some plants, or some <laughs> fake plants, even. Why not? Going on rides with your artificial... Take them to the contemporary. Whatever. That's true. That's true. Uh, next door, the Harmony Barbershop sold mustache cups and nostalgic shaving items, whatever those are. Get a big old leather strap, I guess. Right. Carry it around. Across West Center Street from the greenhouse was the old card shop sponsored by Hallmark. It's now part of Disney Clothiers. Passing the House of Magic and the Penny Arcade, you'd reach the Tobacconist, which was a real place, which lasted until 1985. I actually have a Walt Disney World cigar box from this store. Uh, I use it to store old park items. Nice. Occasionally something from there will pop up on eBay and usually is really expensive. So I bet. (laughs) I don't know. The tobacconist was replaced by Main Street Stationers, which four years later became the Main Street Bookstore, also RIP. Which, man, I wish I could have. I, I don't really remember the Main Street Bookstore, but I would like you to clean go to up there. in there. Yeah. Yeah. On the east side of the street, the Chapeau has been holding down the hat business since the 70s. The Main Street Camera Shop, which was in turn sponsored by GAF, Polaroid, and Kodak has since given way to the confectionery. Uh, that was a cool place because I, you could like rent a camera for a day or rent a video camera for a day. Right. Which was the height of luxury, imagined luxury back in back in those times. One of those big shoulder-mounted video cameras you could get. That's right. Also cool that you know when Disney MGM Studios opened up camera shop same spot, kind of a little Cool parallel there. Yeah, absolutely. I miss those camera shops. Proceeding down the street, we would find the Cup in Saucer, which sold China. Behind it was the Wonderland of Wax, an amazingly named candle shop, which sold these enormous, crazy handmade candles. There is, uh, if you check the blog at progresscityusa.com and search for Wonderland of Wax, I actually have a picture of this place. Picture is very rare, but... Sure is a lot of candles. <laughs> they love their candles. Needed candles back in the, uh, you know, the gaslight era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need them. It was later replaced by the Holiday Corner, which sold Christmas stuff as well as taking over the candle concession. Later, that entire corner of Main and East Center Streets would become Uptown Jewelers, which expanded from its original spot north of Center Street. At the end of East Center Street was Disney and Company, which sold Disney character merchandise. 
I remember buying a pin there long ago. Mm-hmm. At the north corner of Main and Center, we had the Main Street Market House, an opening day institution with its big cast iron stove and the antique telephone, which had a wacky party line recording that would play when you picked up. It sold old-fashioned candy and snacks and Smucker's products. In 1982, it sold Mrs. Butterworth syrup. I guess in case you needed a midday pick-me-up in the Magic Kingdom, you could just uh, fill your syrup flask and, uh, (laughs) I don't know, charge up. It also took over the tobacco concession when the tobacconist closed. One really special display was in 1976 when one of the sponsors was Dixie Crystals. They had a display of a scale model of Cinderella's castle built completely from cubes of Dixie crystal sugar. Wow. And they had a collection of rare antique sugar servers dating from the colonial period. So there was that. You learn a little something. Yeah. Edutainment. Edutainment. A little bit of spectacle with that Cinderella castle. Uh, Sadly, we lost the market house too, this time in 2007 when Crystal Arts expanded south from its original location, which is now the seating area for the Main Street Bakery. I mean, I got to say, a big big time RIP on a Market House. I really, I don't know why I love the Market House so much, but I really did. And when I got to go to Disneyland for the first time, I was just like, yeah, Market House. Now, yeah. you know, they have Starbucks there, but it's still the Market House. I don't know why I liked it. It's just part of one of those things where it just feels it's again, like the, the function of it is following the form. And, you know, it feels like something that would really be on a main street and, uh, you know, you could absolutely you would have to go someplace Old coffee to grinders and yeah. just has that smell that wooden floor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I miss it. Well, talk about that main street bakery has made me hungry. So I think we better take a look at the restaurants. On Main Street. Yes, please. And what better way to do that than from an article from 1974 reviewing the offerings of said restaurants. Oh, boy. Entering the park from the Main Street Viaduct, our unwary guest is immediately confronted by a popcorn vendor. Stop here and you're hooked for the rest of the day. However, bigger and better things await those with more willpower, and the next stop is the Town Square Cafe, where hot dogs are the order of the day. Elsewhere down Main Street, it is gastric mayhem. On this turn-of-the-century street, sweets are the most prevalent. In the Main Street confectionery, you can watch as peanut brittle is made in huge vats. The store offers chocolate bars and saltwater taffy, gumdrops, and more. Candy found in the market house includes lollipops and twists, along with marmalade, jellies, jams, and syrups. Entering the Main Street Bake Shop, you are confronted by the aroma of hot apple pies and twists, French crumbs and cakes, which are being decorated in front of Watering Mouse. Coffee, tea, milk, and juices are on hand to complement the Sara Lee pastries. At a side street outdoor flower shop, bushels of navel oranges, bananas, cabbages, cucumbers, carrots, and pineapples all wait to be plucked. Buy but don't eat. Be forewarned, they're beautifully ripe, but plastic. For a quick lunch and dessert, the Coca-Cola and Brownie Shop at the end of Main Street features hot dogs for a main course. Across the bustling traffic way, the Plaza Restaurant menu lists lasagna de piazza, ravioli, and cafe boca, 
with American favorites of tuna fish, ham and cheese, corned beef on rice sandwiches, or turkey pot pie, followed by a delicious sundae. Step next door for an ice cream cone if you want to take it with you. At the Plaza Pavilion Terrace Dining Room, another quick shop, the hungry guest can choose from the best of the Magic Kingdom, including the Main Street Hot Dog, a Tomorrowlander Hamburger, Frontierland Cheeseburger, Liberty Square Burger, and Adventureland Desserts. At the Crystal Palace, the Main Street's premier restaurant, a fine menu reflects this kitchen's status. Here you can order full dinners of stuffed bell pepper, baked white fish, chopped veal steak, stuffed baked chicken, English pot roast, or baked chopped sirloin. Only in the Contemporary Hotel, or across the Seven Seas Lagoon at the Polynesian Hotel, or Country Club Dining Room, are meals here surpassed. Michael, I am hungry. Oh, now I am too, yeah. I mean, it wasn't till 1974 the Plaza Pavilion would debut, but I had to include that because... I am obsessed with this idea that they had the best of the Magic Kingdom quick service in one restaurant. Yeah, I, that is such an interesting idea. <laughs> I kind of like it. I just am so curious as to what is the difference between a Frontierland burger and a Liberty Square burger. I also want to know this. Yeah. I, That's got to be somewhere. Oh, man. The first restaurant guests would see entering the park would be the Town Square Cafe and the Hospitality House, now Tony's Town Square Restaurant. But this restaurant was sponsored by Oscar Mayer, and it was an interesting blend of fine dining and, well, Oscar Mayer. First off, this place was known locally as the home of the Monte Cristo, something I very much wish was still around. Man, no kidding. But the real star of the show at the Town Square Cafe was little Oscar himself, George Mulchan. Now, Mulchan was hired by the nephew of Oscar Mayer to tour the country in the Wienermobile. He was actually the second Little Oscar as Meinhardt Robbie, the first, and a munchkin in the Wizard of Oz film recommended him for the job. Regardless, George would set up camp at Walt Disney World, serving up hot dogs in the Town Square Cafe and giving out wiener whistles, which I can only imagine contributed to a stressful dining experience. This is just sending me over and over again to eBay to look for things that I didn't even know existed. The wiener whistle. I get a wiener uh, whistle. I read an article from, it was 1993, I think. And he was uh, pictured blowing on his wiener whistle, which he still handed out to kids to this day after his retirement. But oh my gosh, it was at the town square restaurant, Michael, that George would propose to actress Helen Hayes. <laughs> and she accepted leaving the restaurant with his ring. No doubt a highlight to his career, as he mentioned it in said interview. <laughs> George, oh i would too yeah. <laughs> george would stay th- through the oscar meyer contract at town square when it lapsed in 1981 and retire to orlando in 1987 uh, other items on the menu in addition to the aforementioned monte cristo are of course wieners a la oscar which are two hot dogs with baked beans and coleslaw hey i mean come on basic but you know i'm down for it i would take it uh also Finer dining options such as chicken salad Theodore, crepes jambalaya, which sounds a bit dense. Uh, Those are crepes stuffed with crab meat, shrimp, rice pilaf, and green peppers in a Creole sauce. Hmm. You had bananas foster for dessert, mint julep to drink, along with Pepsi and Coke, because they were both sponsors in the early days. You could choose. 
And uh, last but not least, perhaps most importantly, the Orlando Sentinel reported that one of the most popular items on the breakfast menu was orange and grapefruit pieces. You got to keep that citrus lobby happy, Michael. Yeah, got to have, I think in the early days they had citrus in, in every land. At one location, they had something citrusy. As Gotta have that deal. citrus. Uh, I am intrigued by the fact that this was a place that had Monte Cristo's and mint juleps, which seems clearly to be an intentional thing. I mean, yeah, if this menu still existed, I would be camped out here. We talked about how much we loved sitting on the porch. Um, you know, Tony's, I love the concept of Tony's, the menu, not so much. So if they just had a place with, like food you could get a monte cristo and a mint julep and just sit out there and watch the people on the porch come that on that would be good i miss when tony's had breakfast because that they had a was pretty great good breakfast they had a there. great breakfast and uh, it was... that i enjoyed so they should bring that back and then have all this other stuff for their lunch options because i get that julep and that monte cristo and enjoy another prominent place to get food was the plaza ice cream parlor which at the time combined the current parlor with what we know now as the Plaza Restaurant. In fact, in the opening before the Plaza Pavilion, the buildings just ended there. And if you go back and look, you can see uh, just a nice view of the contemporary, where now you have the restrooms over there and the overflow gate up to the town square, just Main Street ended. Um, But the ice cream parlor seemed to always be featured in early footage of Disney World, with the long segment in the film The Magic of the Walt Disney World completely devoted to ice cream. That's right. The ice cream parlor was sponsored by Borden, and Elsie the Cow herself came to dedicate the space. She was paraded down Main Street by the band Mickey and Ambassador Debbie Dane. Uh, Through the years, there was a cool little Borden wagon that would move around Main Street, most often being in Town Square by the hat shop. This is something Disneyland has a bit more that is lost at Walt Disney World with bigger crowds, but it's just nice to see, you know, little horse wagon, had a little bit more scenery, it was a little photo op, a little bit more detail. Yeah, and strange since Disneyland is so much smaller. I think there's more room for it at Disney World. Uh, right. I like that little extra texture. Uh, there was Coke's Refreshment Corner, which is where Casey's Corner is now with the uh, pianist. Uh, that's a relatively comparable space. So we're going to move past that and the Baby Center for a quick stop at First Aid. Uh, now, this space place like City Hall is special to me as I frequent it often during my time at Guest Relations. Uh, filling out incident reports. Uh, there's always some minor ailment to tend to, but have you ever wondered who the first patient was, Michael? I wonder. Well, look no further than this story from the day after Walt Disney World opened. Walt Disney World's first guest casualty Friday morning was a minor one, an eight-year-old boy who developed a nosebleed near Liberty Square. Brooks Sells of Cookville, Tennessee, was treated at the main first aid station near the Crystal Palace. Brooks lay in bed for a while, then demanded to get up because he was missing some rides. He wants to go on the sky ride, said his father, Jack Sells. Brooks was soon up again, and his father had high praise for Disney officials. We were surrounded by them immediately when it happened, said Sells, and they cleaned up everything right afterwards. There were a few employees and employee families at the 24-bed main first aid station Friday, but only a scattering of guests had to use the facility. There are two other first aid stations at the park. Dr. Thomas B. Thames, medical director, said past experience indicated the aid station would be used for a variety of mostly minor ailments, people fainting in the heat, for example, and upset stomachs and blisters. 
Dr. Tam said, however, the clinic was prepared for any type of emergency. So there you go. We got to track that guy down. I know. See if he got to ride the sky ride. <laughs> exactly. I want to know where the other two first aid stations was. I'm calling uh, BS on this because I think uh, one was at the TTC, but I've never heard of another one in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, not that I'm aware of, unless and it was I should backstage know. or something, but I can't think of anything public facing. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big uh, big facility there at the Magic Kingdom, and uh, some beds back there. It's, it's, it's a nice place. So hopefully you don't have to check it out, but if you ever need a band aid, they're there for you. I got my uh, ankle uh, wrapped there once. It was, hey. it was a delightful experience. It's delightful, yes. Of course, the place to dine on Main Street, especially on opening day, was the Grand Crystal Palace Restaurant. This building is very beautiful and perfect segue between Main Street and Adventureland. It's modeled on the San Francisco Conservatory of Flowers in Golden Gate Park, built in 1879. As the article that was read above states, the Crystal Palace was on par with the Liberty Tree Tavern and King Stephen's Banquet Hall as the fine dining establishments in Magic Kingdom at the time. And the real highlight of the experience was the Crystal Palace Trio, three piece of accordion, violin, and upright bass roaming the restaurant. As one write-up said, guests are serenaded by strolling violinists as they dine in Victorian dignity. Ooh. I mean, come on. Uh, as stuffed bell pepper appeared to be one of the specialties, I might just stay at the town square restaurant. Yeah, I'll save my dignity and get a, a Oscar Mayer hot dog and some slaw. Right. Uh, but you know, I really want to go back to the crystal palace. All this reading about it has made me want to go back, you know, the buffet with Winnie the Pooh kind of kept me away, but it is really such a cool space. And inside you can kind of pick if you want to be in Adventureland or main street, you know, back when Adventureland wasn't so overgrown. I remember we had a, I think we had a breakfast there, and you could just look out on the Swiss Family Treehouse, you know, at the end yeah. of it. That's... Yeah, it was very cool. I don't think I've been there since the Buffeteria days, actually. But uh, maybe sometime. Yeah, but uh, we can't leave Main Street without focusing on its excellent live music. In 1972, Walt Disney World was reported to have 300 musicians, singers, and dancers on staff one of the nation's largest employers of show business talent. And you would think this is one of the largest concentrations here on Main Street. In 1971, Main Street had seven ensembles that would entertain guests. Oh, man. Wow. Of course, you had the Walt Disney World Marching Band, which we have discussed a bit on the soundtrack episodes. They're a mainstay to this day at the Magic Kingdom. There was a Keystone Cop Quartet, saxophone ensemble that was always shown on Main Street at Disneyland and prone to fits of wackiness course yeah chase you around uh then there was a town band who appear on the musical souvenir album of the live park music in 1973 the description on that lp says quote the butcher the baker and the candlestick maker all get together for some musical fun in town square what i don't know uh, this seems like a band dressed as town citizens and a little bit more informal than the marching band a bit of Dixieland mixed in. I've sometimes banjos were involved. I, they got exported to Disneyland, and I've seen pictures of them at Disneyland. But the town band, I, I don't know. Uh, similarly, there was the fire department band, which still exists in Disneyland. I haven't seen them at Walt Disney World to my memory, but uh, I imagine this involved horns and percussion from the marching band. But 
At Disneyland, they wheel out an upright piano, which is always cool to see. Uh, definitely a tip of the hat to the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Yeah, it's it's nice that a lot of these things that are gone from Florida still linger on out there in uh, Anaheim. All right. Uh, we've already mentioned the Crystal Palace Trio. They count uh, relaxing dinner music there. And we round out the lineup with the Dapper Downs Barbershop Quartet and the pianist over at the refreshment corner. Uh, luckily, a lot of this still exists on Main Street. And like Michael said, even more at Disneyland. Uh, in Florida, live entertainment has been squeezed down through the years, but it seems like one of the hallmarks of this land is to have some music bouncing off the buildings from some live performers. It wouldn't be the same without any of that live music being there. So that about wraps up this month's episode, a trip down Main Street, USA. And it's the time where we check in with Michael to see if we have any new Patreon subscribers. Michael, anybody joined up this month? Yes, I'm very excited to say we have a bumper crop of members that have joined up this month. Uh, we've got Chuck, Amanda, Daniel D, and Daniel W, Dennis, and Jason. All, uh, all signing up. I'm really happy, and we've done some cool stuff. We've done two live events so far. Uh, we've only been blocked by YouTube once for it, <laughs> and uh, so far we're having a really good time. So everybody should go to patreoncom USA and check out what's happening. Lots of exclusive content. That's right. We really appreciate you all signing up for that, and. And like Michael said, this has been so much fun doing these live streams. I'm looking forward to doing them more in the future, to doing the chat. And, you know, we do some slides and some movies, some wacky stuff. And uh, we hope not to get banned by YouTube again. But, you know, <laughs> if it happens, it happens. We're not going to hold anything back. No, no, no. We're, we're going all in for you guys. So, uh, yeah, as Jeff says, thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. And uh, we're having some fun so far. Uh, it's been fun getting to learn how to do the, the streaming stuff and the, on the uh, live event and doing video, doing slideshows, showing you some rare stuff. So we hope you'll join us. Yeah, we ask you to stay in touch with us. Uh, if not on Patreon, we just have an email. It's podcast at progresscityusa.com. We love comments, suggestions, uh, critiques, uh, if they're constructive, I guess. But uh, anything, leave us a review on your podcast platform. Rate us. Do whatever. Spread the word to your friends. Tweet us. Uh, Michael is at Progress City USA. Fitting. I am at Jeff G. Crawford. Also fitting. So uh, be in touch with us. Michael, we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World uh, in this pandemic world where we do it from home. What is next? Well, in our next episode, we're going to have an interview with none other than Disney Imagineering veteran and design guru in his own right, Mr. Eddie Sato. Eddie is a great guy, a man with a million stories to tell, and some very interesting thoughts about design. So I'm really fascinated to hear him talk. 
Yes, Eddie is a an amazing mind and a great guest, and you will be entertained. Oh yes. So please tune in for that. You will enjoy. And what's coming after that? Well, uh, next month, which I guess is April, shockingly, we're going to be walking through that castle portico and into Fantasyland to discuss the most magical land of them all. These are two special months for me. Uh, I worked on Main Street. Before that, I worked in Fantasyland. So it's it's, all, it's homecoming for me. Exactly. From straw hats to lederhosen for you. That's right. Everywhere in between. But uh, So stay tuned for that. We uh, thank you all for listening. We uh, hope you all are staying safe. We look forward to joining you later this month with Eddie Sato. And until then, take care. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. They call it Progress, Progress. Our time is never We'll be seeing you again next time. At progress, Progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.